there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. So you have seen number three. I hope there isn't a number four somewhere else. But a tiny little lady from Fort Worth, Texas, heard my story. She herself had just been widowed. And so she said to me, Elizabeth, how in the world do you ever get two husbands, three husbands? <laughs> so when I told her my story, she said, I believe I'm going to rent my house out to three widowers. I just love that Texas accent. I believe I'm going to rent my house out to three widowers. You know, well, as far as I know, she never did do it. <clears throat> but it's an idea for some of you widows. Okay, let's uh, sober up now, and I want to talk to you. My topic this afternoon is choose your attitude. <laughs> and let's not make excuses for ourselves and say that we can't choose our attitudes. God has so ordained that we are capable of choosing many things, including our attitude. Now, as I confessed to you earlier this morning, I am a worrywart. I am very easily disturbed. And in my old age, I can come up with a long list of disturbing things that might happen. Long list of things that might happen that I can start worrying about now. And I go way back to, 19, to when I was 14 years old at, prayer, at uh, Hampton DuBose Academy in Zellwood, Florida. The headmistress was a woman by the name of Mrs. DuBose, and she was a redoubtable woman, believe me. She was a good two or three inches taller than I am, probably about 250 pounds. And when she came into a room, it was like a galleon in full sail. <laughs> and we were absolutely terrified. And I had not been in that school for more than a week or so before I got called into her study or her office. And both she and her husband began to tear strips off of me for about two hours or so, telling me all the bad things in my life and how they were going to ship me off of there as fast as they could get me off. And she talked about my negative attitude. I was determined that I was not going to be sent home. My parents would have been highly disgraced and disgusted. And so I prayed that the Lord would help me to shape up and do what I was supposed to do in that school. And I do thank God that I had three years in that school and learned a good many things from Mrs. DuBose. But I had to choose a different attitude. She kept telling me that I had a negative attitude, and I'm sure she was right. And there's still plenty of reasons to think that I have them occasionally nowadays. But in the mercy of God, he is teaching me still. In the book of Ezra, chapter 6, verses 19 to 22, 
We read, on the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites, who had returned from the exile, ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors, in order to see the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days, they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because the, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria, so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God. And that must have been quite a difficult thing for a king to cha change his attitude to the point where he was willing to assist them in the work on the house of God. And God has ordained that you and I have the power to change our attitudes, to choose right attitudes, to eschew wrong attitudes. St. Teresa of Avila wrote this, let nothing disturb you, nothing frighten you, all things are passing, God never changes. Patience wins all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. Patience wins all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. And St. Teresa of Avila was quite a character. Maybe some of you know the very rather well-known story, which is said to be true, that she was one time uh, dumped out of a carriage into the ditch at the side. And as she was wallowing in the ditch, she looked up at the Lord and she said, well, if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. <laughs> and I called my dear uh, sisters of the Carmelite Monastery, which is not very far from where we live, to make sure that I had the right uh, St. Teresa of Avila. And they assured me that the poem that I wrote first was from her. And I said, and what about being dumped over into the ditch? And they said, oh yes, she is the one who said that. So you could be very holy and also very, uh, shall we say, delightful and funny. <laughs> if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. You wonder what God's reply to that might have been. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know what it was? Well, you know the story of Fanny Crosby. She wrote probably between 8,000 and 9,000 hymns. But she was blinded at the age of six weeks because of the mistake of a doctor. And that little girl, when she was nine years old, she wrote this, Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep, weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Now isn't that wonderful for a little nine-year-old girl to be able to write a poem like that? Well, I read it on my radio program 
and I get a lot of mail from men who are in prison, men and women who are in prison. And a prisoner copied what she had said and put a little bit of his own in there. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I am not free. I am resolved that in this cell, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm chained, I cannot and I won't. Now that's what you call choosing an attitude. And the Lord Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of God. My meat is to do the will of my Father. And in John 14, verse 1, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now that little word let means that you have the power to let it be troubled or to let it not be troubled. And you think, well, I don't know, it's, I'm just feeling so bad. And my dear, wonderful L.E. Maxwell, who was the principal of Prayer Bible Institute when I was a student there, he told us about a lady who came up to him one day and she said, oh, Mr. Maxwell, she said, I just don't know why the Lord has blessed me so much. And he looked at her, she just looked so miserable, and he said, well, sister, you certainly, lead it, certainly needed it. And Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. That implies that you have a choice either to let it or to not let it. And God has given you the power to choose. And Jesus said, trust in God, trust also in me. 1 Peter 4.1 says, since Christ suffered in his body, Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. What kind of an attitude did Jesus have when he was suffering in his body? Well, he suffered as a human being had to suffer. He had a body like any other human being, but he was able to trust God. <clears throat> we are capable of arming ourselves with the same attitude. And when you're feeling absolutely miserable and probably wanting to make everybody else feel just as miserable as you are, that's an opportunity to choose a right attitude. Just do a complete flip-flop and say, I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. I will look upward and travel onward and not be afraid. The Lord is going to help you. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And I never have forgotten the intensity with which a missionary by the name of Dr. Virginia Blakesley quoted those words as she told some hair-raising stories of things that had happened to her in Africa. And it was throughout, I think it was a whole week of conferences, and I was only 14 at the time. But that woman had such tremendous power and such a riveting message. I couldn't take my eyes from her. And it seems to me, this may be just apocryphal, however I remembered it, but it seemed to me that 
again and again, she would lean over that pulpit with the tears just pouring down her face. And she would quote that verse from Isaiah, the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. I can still see her with the tears just pouring down her cheeks as she quoted those verses, and I just automatically memorized them and keep going back to them again and again. It helps me to choose my attitude as well. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. So what else is new? We're not poor little me. God is, you know, when God gave out all the blessings, I was behind the door and I didn't get anything. And, you know, we can think of all kinds of ways to make ourselves and everybody else miserable, but we can also choose our attitudes. Now, I haven't given you any number one, two, and three so far, but now let's begin after that introduction. Number one is the cost. If the Lord Jesus was to become a helpless baby and a helpless little child and a little boy, he was the Lord of the universe. And of course, he had to become a helpless baby, dependent on his mother's milk. Isn't that amazing? The Lord of the universe, a tiny little baby, little squalling baby. And as he grew up, of course, we have no uh, different, we don't have any specifics about the way in which he grew up until he was 12 years old. So presumably he skinned his knees every once in a while, or he got hit by a rock with some of his playmates or whatever. But the point that I'm making is it was the Lord of the universe, the Lord who had created all things, who was prepared to put himself in the experience of a tiny little baby from a mother's womb. And he grew like any little boy. He had to go to bed when his mommy told him to. He skinned his knees, probably. He was taunted by some of his playmates, I guess, shunned by some, skinned his knees, whatever. We don't know anything for the, about those 12, first 12 years until his parents had taken him up to Jerusalem, and on their way home, they discovered that the boy was not in their company. It was quite a large group of people that were going back to their places, and somebody discovered, after several days of walking, that, Je that the Lord Jesus was not there. And of course, they had to go back and find out where he was, and they found him confounding the experts of the law as he sat there with wisdom way beyond anything that they could comprehend. And you remember Mary's words to him, we have sought you sorrowing, where have you been? And he said, didn't you know that I was out about my father's business? At the age of 12, and you who have teenage children or children who are about to be teenage, let me strongly urge you to realize that the word teenage never existed until Franklin Delano Roosevelt coined that word. Children were expected to be adults when they were 12 years old and thereafter. 
And we have nine, nine years of foolishness. And we roll our eyes and we shrug our shoulders and say, well, they're just kids, you know, they're only kids. Jesus took a man's acceptance of the job that God had given him to do. And my parents were very, I would say they were strict, but they were very loving, and they expected us to behave like adults from the time we were about 12 or 13. There wasn't a whole lot of foolishness. We couldn't be whining and groaning when mother told us that we had to wash the dishes, and since there were only two of us girls and four boys, the boys had to learn to wash dishes. I had a letter from a mother who listens to my radio program, and she said, I have two girls and one boy, and the girls always wash the dishes, but she said, I think that my son should learn to wash dishes, but I don't know how to tell him. <laughs> and I thought, poor lady, you know. <laughs> how simple it is. All she has to do is tell the two girls, tonight you don't have to wash dishes. Joe is going to wash the dishes, and Joe is going to moan and groan and have all sorts of feelings and sorry for himself. But when she asked me, she said, I, I just can't think of a reason why I think he should wash dishes. So the answer was very simple. I said, because you made the dinner, didn't you? Why shouldn't he wash dishes just the way his sisters do? Think about these things. Think about responsibility for your children by the time they are 12, 13, at the latest 14, so that they are taking responsibility at home, responsibility in their money, responsibility in the choice of their friends. These things are what ought to be going on between 12 and 20. Let's say after 20, they're pretty much on their own. You can't do a whole lot with them, but you have all those years. And I think of how faithfully our parents taught us to be adults. They made it, made it very clear that they, we were expected to behave like adults. So the Lord Jesus had to work in a carpenter shop. He was a man, and in his manhood, he was tired like anybody else. He slept once with his head on a pillow in a storm. I just love that little touch that the, Jesus was sleeping in the boat with his head on a pillow. Just shows us the simplicity of his humanness. There were times when he had to get alone to pray, and he would find people already there waiting for him. There were times when he had to allow others to do things for him. Think of the lovely home in Mary and Martha and Lazarus's home, which must have been a place of great respite for the Lord Jesus. He would go there and know that he could be quiet with them. He became a servant. He said, I am among you as one who serves. And it says in Philippians 2, 5 to 8, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbly, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Remember, this is the Lord of the universe who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. A Viennese psychiatrist by the name of Viktor Frankl was in concentration camp during World War II. And Frankl wrote a beautiful book describing some of the conditions in those hideous camps. And he told how they had nothing but watery soup once a day, six days a week. But on one day out of the week, I think he said it was Friday, they would not only have just the soup, but they would also get one piece of bread. And he said it was very interesting to notice that there were usually some people who would take that one piece of bread and they would walk all around the concentration camp trying to find somebody who was worse off than they were in order to give them that piece of bread. And he said, the most interesting thing about that was that they were the people most likely to survive, having given up their right to themselves, their right to that one piece of bread, and given in great joy and happiness the one piece of bread that belonged to them on that particular day. And the people who hoarded their piece of bread were more likely to die. I thought that was very interesting. He wrote a whole book on the subject. So the cost for the Lord of the universe was that he become a helpless baby. He had to go through what every other man goes through, manhood. He became uh, tired and slept and did all of those things. That was the cost. Now, second point is the specifics for you and me. The specifics for you and me. Now, if you're a mother, you know that you have to put yourself at the disposal of all. And nobody knows that until they become a mother. Of course, we, we all had a mother in some way or other, most of us, unless your mother died in childbirth or something. But we didn't think anything about the sacrifices that our mothers made. I'm sure that it never crossed my mind that my mother was making any sacrifices at all. But if you're a mother, you know that you have to put yourself at the disposal of other people especially of teeny tiny little people who can make an awful racket and an awful mess. These are specifics. You have to choose your attitude. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this child. Enable me to love this child even when he's a mess or when he's being disobedient or all of the other possibilities. And Jesus was constantly followed by multitudes of people. How, how very difficult that must have been for him. Again and again, he would go off into a quiet place to pray, and sometimes they would be there before he got there, and sometimes they would follow him. He had very little quietness. He had multitudes demanding his attention, asking for his miracles, bringing the sick and the lame and the weary, asking that he heal them. 
And I suppose that all of us can think of somebody who in our lives has become sort of a nuisance. And we just wish that we didn't have to deal with that person. I can remember a girl who was at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and she would come to me every other day or so, asking me for advice about how in the world she could cope with this or that or the other thing. And she just became a bore. I don't know any other word for it. She was a, a, a hideous bore. And once I had told her everything I knew how to tell her about how to get along in the seminary and how to keep up with your work and how to be polite to your professors and all that sort of thing, she would come back with some other excuse for the fact that she was having a miserable time. Well, my attitude toward someone is very likely to become a nuisance. And I had to pray that the Lord would keep me from being a nuisance to her, even though she was a nuisance to me. And so I had to change my attitude and receive her graciously and kindly up to the point, and a point finally came where I said, I can't tell you anything else. I've told you everything I know about what you're asking me. And she disappeared. I've often wondered what happened to the poor girl. And I'm sure she must have thought of me as a nuisance because I did not do all the things that she wanted me to do for, for her. Now, for those of you who are a wife, you are subordinate. We are not equals in husband and wife. That is the world's definition. And I'm tired of hearing about it, but the scripture is very clear that the husband is the head of the wife. It doesn't say the husband ought to become the head of the wife or ought to love being the head of the wife. It just simply says the husband is the head of the wife. So you can like it or you can lump it. <laughs> but you're going to have a very miserable marriage unless you follow what God has laid out so clearly and so simply in his word. A wife is meant to be subordinate. Do you mind? being subordinate? Well, to me, it's a huge relief. I know that the buck stops with Lars Gren. It does not stop with me. And if he makes a mistake once in a blue moon, which he might do, I don't have to worry about the consequences. He's the one that's going to have to worry about the consequences. And he's the one who has to answer to God. I have to answer to God in my willingness or my unwillingness to submit. Now, do you think you're looking at a woman who is born submissive? <laughs> Not on your life. I'm sure that my mother was the most that I was the most difficult of my mother's children, because I argued with her constantly. I can still hear her in her old age saying, "Bets, don't argue with me. Do what I say." And right down until she died in her 80s, I thought she and I still were sort of sparring partners. However, she was a wonderful mother and had learned a great many things about quietness and keeping her mouth shut and treating my husband as though he were, my father, as though he were a, a king. So those of you who mind being unequal, 
and really wish that you didn't have to be subordinate, think of it as a great relief. God has given your husband the, response, the final responsibility. It says in Ephesians 5, verses, verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, not because he's the smartest person, not because he's the most wonderful man in the whole world, but it says because Christ is the head of the church. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Now I know there are a lot of singles in this room today. Can you receive the gift of singleness without grumbling? Not easy, is it? But yesterday is gone. You have no way of knowing that any of us has a tomorrow. We have this one day. Can you choose an attitude of thank you, Lord, in this one day? If you're single, you're praying and praying and praying that the right man will come along at the right time. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you start grumbling and when you start getting angry with God and saying, Lord, why do you not give me a husband? Or when are you ever going to let me have a husband or whatever it is? I got a letter from one lady. She said, I was never meant to be a spinster. Well, how does she know she was never meant to be a spinster? <laughs> it was very likely God's ordaining that he did not want her to be a spinster, that he did not want her to refuse to be a spinster. Her attitude was one of anger against God. And when, when we are hurt, and all of us are hurt from time to time, very likely the hurt comes from someone you love, your children, your parents, your friend, your husband, whatever. And an old writer says, accustom yourself to unreasonableness and injustice. God sees these things far better than you do and permits them. I'll read that again. Accustom yourself to unreasonableness and injustice. God sees these things far better than you do and permits them. You have the power to choose your attitude. Are you a moody person? You like to get into a funk and you don't want anybody to talk to you. Leave me alone, all that kind of nastiness. Do you respond with a rather thunderous silence or with a calm, loving, unselfish acceptance? Jesus is never going to, to intrude into our lives. He does not pry into our lives. What does the Bible say he does? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. But what courtesy, what gentlemanliness, that he says, I stand at the door and knock. I had a, a very interesting story from a woman who had heard me speak in Massachusetts. And I don't remember anything about what I talked about that day, but in, in the, except for one thing, I mentioned something about wives loving your husbands and being accepting of them, no matter whether they're difficult people or not. And this woman just happened to be on the verge of splitting from her husband 
And so when she heard what I said then, she probably didn't listen to anything else that I said for the rest of that day. And she went out of there just furious, just in a rage. And when she got into her car, she was roaring down the highway and just saying, Elizabeth Elliot, you know, she thinks that she can tell me what I'm supposed to do with this miserable husband, 32 years. He's never done anything but sit in front of the tube, and I am so sick of that. And so she was having these horrible things, thoughts about him as she was driving home. But I had a letter from her later. And she said, Elizabeth, our home has been completely transformed. She said, as angry as I was at you for what you were saying to me, she said, before I got to the house, something in me had changed. And she said, I parked the car, I went into the house, as usual there sat my husband like a couch potato, gazing at the tube. She said, I was so tired of that. I just hated that scene. But she said, instead of talking to him about it and saying, why don't you do something else? Why don't you turn off the TV? She said, I walked in there and I said, honey, may I speak to you for a moment? And she said, for the first time in our married life, he turned off the TV. She said, it scared me. I was so shocked. Well, then she said, I didn't know what to say. And he sat there very calmly and quietly, and she said, I began to tell him what God had just done in my heart when the two of them had just made the decision a couple of days earlier that they were going to split after 32 years. Well, she said, God has completely transformed our marriage. And about, that was probably about five or six years ago, and I guess it was a about two years ago, that Lars and I were also in a church in Massachusetts. This lady lived in Massachusetts, but uh, we were in another area. And during the book signing after I had spoken, this very lovely, very beautifully dressed, short little lady came up to me. And she said, Elizabeth, you're looking at Mrs. G. I had talked about her on my radio program, just calling her Mrs. G, telling the story. And I couldn't believe my eyes, because of course I had never seen this woman before. I'd never picked her out of the crowd when she was sitting there listening to me talking. But here she was, just radiant. And I said, well, how are things going now with your husband? She said, Elizabeth, it is indescribable. She said, we love each other in a way that all those 32 miserable years we could never do. I just want you to know that God has completely changed our attitudes. God can do that. Does he need to do that for you in some specific? I don't know, but God knows. She said, the Lord is penetrating my marriage, specifically through my heart attitude toward my husband. I now have a heart of submission because I can trust God. I have struggled wondering how to submit when it seems he does not lead. God has, spoke, has shown me how to quiet down and especially how to notice my husband's unspoken leadership and my surrender to it. When I put my personal desires aside, 
I saw that Bible study day is my husband's most difficult day as a school teacher. Now, we're talking about another couple here, not the one that uh, I first spoke about. My husband's most difficult day as a school teacher. This is an opportunity for me to minister to him by keeping a peaceful and calm atmosphere and making him a hot lunch. Through the letting go and offering up, I am isolated, practically and humanly speaking, because we have only one car. But God lavishes me with blessings, she says. She chose a different attitude. My friend, Nay Bailey, who works with Campus Crusade, was in either Poland or Czechoslovakia or someplace like that. And she had some heavy baggage, and she was running along the station platform wanting to get on the train. And two very well-dressed young men came along and said, may we help you with your luggage? And she was very grateful. They were very clean-cut, nicely-dressed men. They helped her with her luggage. They put the luggage on the train. She got onto the train, they jumped off the train, the train started off, and when she went to her seat, she discovered that they had rifled her shoulder bag, which contained her passports, her uh, checks, all the papers that she needed to be traveling in those countries. The visas and everything was gone, everything. What would you do in a case like that? Well, my friend Nay Bailey, who is a seasoned woman of God, she just sat there quietly on the train and said, Well, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do about this, <laughs> but I just know that you're going to take care of it. And she got off at the next station. She went into the police station and explained her predicament. And they rolled their eyes, the policemen, they said, Well, this is a a common sting operation happens every day. And we've never heard of anybody getting anything back. Well, she told, she simply talked about the Lord, and she said that she had asked the Lord to enable her to get those things back. And so she witnessed to these very sophisticated men. And the end of the story was that she was able to recover everything except $60 in American cash. Now, God is able to do things like that, but it takes the choosing of an attitude on our part to entrust our troubles to God. Nay was able to say, thank you, Lord, before she knew whether she was going to get anything back. She just knew that God was going to do something. Teach me to treat all that comes to me with simple faith strong trust, and a firm conviction that your will governs all. I don't remember who wrote those words. I didn't, but I like that. Teach me to treat all that comes to me with simple faith, a strong trust, and a firm conviction that your will governs all. Now, number three. If you've lost track, I'll go back to the specifics here. Number one is the cost. Number two is the specifics. Number three is choose joy. In Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, we read, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice. 
in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Now, I don't know what disaster you may be expecting, but I do know that it is entirely possible for us to take ourselves by the scruff of the neck and choose joy. We can choose our attitudes. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. And Habakkuk made a deliberate and carefully calculated choice when he said those words. The sovereign Lord is my, cho my choice. Excuse me, the sovereign Lord is my strength. I'm sure that many of you saw in the flesh that wonderful lady, Corrie Ten Boom. She went all over the world, as you know, tramping for the Lord. And she came to our area, and I had the opportunity to be invited to have tea with her and my little daughter. My daughter, she wasn't so little. We had a wonderful time with her. She was in bed at the time because the doctor had prescribed that she had to have one full day every week in bed, otherwise she was going to collapse. So she was still tramping for the Lord, but one day a week she would be in bed. So it happened that she invited us to come on that particular day, and she was in bed with a beautiful pair of, of, of purple silk pajamas. And right away she just started to ask me about my life instead of telling me all the things that I was dying to know about hers. And at one point, she suddenly jumped out of bed, went over to her suitcase, opened it up, and took out a piece of embroidery that looked like an awful mess. It didn't look like any kind of a design. But then she turned it around the other way, and you could see that it was a totally beautiful, different design which had been wrought into that piece of fabric. And then she quoted for us this poem, perhaps very well known to some of you. My life is but a weaving betwixt my God and me. I do not choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I, in foolish pride, forget that he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unfold the pattern and explain the reason why. For the dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. It was wonderful to hear her recite those words. And of course, it didn't take me very long to memorize them myself. And then Corey told us how every morning when she was in concentration camp, the first thing she would do would be to jump up from the pallet in that filthy prison where she was. She would jump up and start singing, stand up, stand up for Jesus, just as loud as she could so that all the inmates could hear her. Can you imagine every morning? She was cold, she was wet, there were bugs, there were mice, there were rats. But she sang, stand up for Jesus. Now that's what you call choosing your attitude. Philippians 2, 14, 15, and 17 is another good passage on that. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, 
without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. But, Paul says, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from you, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. That's Philippians 2, 14, 15, 17. A woman by the name of Edith Stein, who was Jewish but had become a Catholic before she went into concentration camp, and she was in that concentration camp along with the Jews and other people as well. And she wrote, Strive to see God in all things without exception, and acquiesce in his will with absolute submission. Do everything for God, uniting yourself to him by a mere upward glance or by the overflowing of your heart towards him. Never be in a hurry. Do everything quietly and with a calm spirit. Whatever did not fit in with my plan did lie within the plan of God. I have an ever-deepening and firmer belief that nothing is merely an accident when seen in the light of God, that my whole life down to the smallest details has been marked out for me in the plan of divine providence and has a completely coherent meaning in God's all-seeing eyes. And so I am beginning to rejoice in the light of the glory wherein this meaning will be unveiled to me. That was from Edith Stein, Sister Benedicta of the Cross, a Carmelite nun, killed at Auschwitz, August 1942. Plenty of illustrations of what it means to choose your attitude. May God give us grace to choose an attitude that pleases him in every particular. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Thank you.